Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, we did a little traveling uh, this podcast. We went to the land down under, correct? Yeah, that's right. We took a virtual road trip to speak with an Australian, Steve Powells, who is one of the, probably the foremost expert in the world on herbicide resistance in weeds. Right. It was a fascinating talk with Steve. It was a little bit long, but it was great. So we decided to split this podcast up into two episodes. This first episode is going to be regarding Steve's upbringing and background, uh, which is very fascinating. And then we'll release the second half of this interview here in about a couple weeks. So be sure you subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. That helps our metrics. And we'll jump right into the conversation with Steve. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. To kick things off here today, would you tell us a little bit about your background? Yes, hello. This is Steve Powell's here in Perth in Western Australia. So sorry about this funny accent. Hope you can all understand. <laughs> it's a pretty typical uh, country Australian accent because uh, my background is that uh, I started life in a, uh, on a farm, a very small dairy farm, and uh, with four other siblings, so five kids, born in 1950. And then uh, through tragedy, my mother uh, found herself with no money and five children and no husband. And so we were raised in poverty, I guess you can say. Poverty in terms of any dollars in the household, but not in the love and attention that our mother bestowed upon us. Well, that's got to be hard. How old were you then at that time when your father disappeared? Yeah, I was four years old. So the, the children were eight. I was four, three, two and one. So a pretty, um, a pretty intense time of life for parents. And, and there was just my mum aided, in fact, also by her own mother. So my, my grandmother and um, we're on a small dairy farm in the state of New South Wales. And um, we stayed on that till I was about eight. But um, then we moved into the small town, which was about 20 miles away, and um, into uh, and, and started uh, school there in the town. So uh, after that, I was in a small country town until age 15 when I became a high school dropout. Wow. So I, I definitely want to follow up on that. But so your mom had these five small children, a dairy farm. I mean, did she do the milking herself and kind of take care of the kids at the same time? That's she must have been a strong woman. Uh, she was certainly a strong woman. We were we were living on a dairy farm, um, but uh, not uh, working that little dairy farm. And my grandmother uh, was just a few miles up the valley, and she was working with her um, husband, a dairy, a small dairy farm. So okay. at that stage, we, we were just living on the dairy farm, but I would also go to my grandmother's house to, um, and that's a long time ago, 1950 and uh, 54, and my grandfather obviously wasn't an early adopter because my earliest memories are of hand milking and anyone who's done that three a year and my and when I started school your listeners probably won't believe this but I went to school on a horse oh wow (laughs) (laughs) that's incredible 
You've seen a lot of change in your life. And not only the technology changes, which I'm sure we'll get into some, but you're a well-known and respected researcher today. And you started out in poverty, basically, and dropped out of high school. Yeah, all five children. I mean, we, I mean, we were poor. And, and my mother, um, uh, she, she had left school at 13 or so. And um, so while she had many great traits, of course, she, she didn't really value uh, education and um, didn't really understand education and, and the transformative power of education. Um, so we, we all left school at 15, mainly because uh, we needed to, to work to, um, to earn some money. So, uh, so all five siblings left and I left at 15 um, and, and, and moved initially to the big city of Sydney uh, and then uh, back to the country. So, yeah, it's, it's not an ideal way to start, Jason and Preston. Wow. So what was your occupation at 15 years old? Well, my first, my first job was clerical, and I had the grand title of extraneous clerk or clerk. <laughs> so you can imagine that it, uh, it wasn't a highly skilled job. But then I went back to my hometown uh, working for a produce mill. So that was basically a grain trading and grain mill operation that produced the the dairy feed that that farmers feed to dairy cattle in the, uh, to help them uh, when they're milking so i quit pretty quickly back into agriculture by by 17 i was working back in agriculture doing things from being a laborer uh, to working in the office that sort of thing so um, I've been in agriculture my whole life, really. Obviously, that's a, a difference between the uh, 50s or 60s and today, too. Your, your title of extraneous clerk, they would surely find a way to make that sound a little better today. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, it doesn't fill you with, uh, with pride to describe yourself as an extraneous clerk. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you were... Uh, you know, you dropped out of high school. It doesn't sound, you know, when we talk about a high school dropout, that doesn't seem like there's a lot of promise ahead from an educational standpoint, especially as some people maybe can find a career that, that works for them. But how did you get back into education? Then you must've got back into education at some point. Yes. Uh, the, so I worked um, up to, to age of 20 for this this company uh, in, in in agriculture and grain, um, but I, I I really wanted to get an education, and as you say, there there were no opportunities, and uh, it was really at that time no pathway. But I I cast around, and there was a very small agricultural college, so you wouldn't even call it a junior college, that. Um, took males only at that time <laughs> and uh, and they were really boys that were uh, going to go back onto the farm and give them a one-year training in agriculture and and I, I didn't even have the because I dropped out I didn't even have the, the the qualifications to go there but I thought maybe they would accept me and so I I wrote to and then went and visited and talked to the the principal and they agreed to to enrol me 
So at age 20, turning 21, I started at a very small male-only agricultural college doing basic agricultural uh, training um, with 16, 17-year-old uh, boys, basically, and I was 20, turning 21. So I had a maturity advantage over them. So I worked really hard for that year and I was the top student by far. And uh, as a result of that, I was able to, to enter a junior college specialising in agriculture. So not a university, but a junior college. And therefore, that was a, a three-year program and a pathway towards, um, uh, towards uh, university education. So I'm a little bit curious. When you started that initial school, did you have kind of a long-term plan that you you knew what you wanted to do or, you know, to go on to a junior college and go on to a greater degree? Or were you kind of intending to go back just to work in the ag industry? Yes, I was. I was, of course, I had no idea, really. Uh, I was just a callow youth. But I, I thought that I, that yes, as you said, that I, that I would get some qualification that would help me in the, in the ag industry. But as I started back, into study, even though it was very applied, um, I, I became interested in what I was doing. Uh, I worked quite hard. And of course, I had to work outside of that as well because I didn't have any money. So I used to work in bars and play rugby for a pittance and all sorts of things to, to get enough money and, and also got some help from the company that I was working with. So. Um, I did think initially I, I would go back and join that company. But as I went through that junior college, I was called Hawkesbury Agricultural College. And I, I thought, well, I want to go to university. And, and uh, But pathways were very, very limited at that time to go from uh, this junior college to a more senior university. And I became aware of that fantastic organisation, Rotary, and at that time, they had uh, a fellowship um, which would enable someone to study overseas for a year. And I applied for it. And I went through a whole set of interviews, you know, a kid that was trying hard uh, from disadvantaged background. And I got it. I, I, in 1974, I was awarded this Rotary Fellowship. And I'd written it that I'd go to a U.S. land grant university and pursue a master's degree or a master's degree in agriculture. And, uh, and I got the scholarship and I applied to a bunch of uh, U.S. mainstream universities like Purdue and Iowa State and many others. And most of them said no because I'd only been at a junior college. But Michigan State University admitted me into the master's program. And so in 1975, I got on a plane. First time in my life, I got on an aeroplane. Oh, wow. First time I'd been out of my own home state. First time I'd got a passport. Uh, got on this plane. I got such a cheap ticket that um, to fly to the U.S. that uh, when they first came around with a meal, uh, on the plane, I thought they wouldn't give me one because I'd paid so little for the ticket. And I was absolutely <laughs> delighted when they gave me the, the meal and 
I waited for every meal from then on all the way to the US. So uh, I wasn't going to miss out on that. And, uh, and so started uh, a completely new life for me in which I was outside of my own culture, uh, outside of the small world in which I had lived until that point. Um, and the whole world opened up to me. And uh, that's a great thing. And I, I'd recommend to any young person listening today that if they get the chance to travel or live somewhere else, it's just a great thing to experience because it opens your mind to the bigger world. Was there a big culture difference? You mentioned culture difference between Australia and the U.S. We kind of think of Australia as being somewhat similar maybe in the culture, but maybe, maybe that impression is not right. No, that impression is correct. Uh, um, uh, Australia is, is very similar in many ways to the United States. Uh, it is a pioneer culture, as the U.S. was. Uh, agriculture, very important. Um, uh, it's just a junior version, pretty much, of, uh, of, of the United States. Of course, obviously, the United States is the, the big dominant culture, but Australians watch American TV shows, watch American movies, sports-orientated, a lot of similarities. So, yes, the, there was not the cultural difference that would have occurred if I'd have gone to, a, to China, for example. But nevertheless, there were clear cultural differences. And, and uh, let me give you a, a, what might be a, a silly example, but light switches in Australia go the opposite direction. Uh, we drive on the opposite side of the road. And my first words were, oh, in the US, you drive on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> well, that's not true. You just drive on the other side of the road. But, but appreciating that that is not right and wrong uh, is part of opening your mind to things being different to that which you have experienced to that point in your life. And I still hear people say, Oh, they drive on the wrong side of the road or the light switches go the wrong way. They don't. It's just different. That's a great perspective. So was your initial degree in America, was that a broad agronomy-based degree or did you kind of dive into herbicides and wheat science at that point? No, as you say, it was a, it was a, a, a broad degree. So at junior college, in Australia, I'd really, uh, my major was agronomy and I, I joined the crop science department at, at Michigan State University and took a lot of good coursework in plant uh, physiology and agronomy and, and those areas. But as I was going through my master's degree at Michigan State, which I must say was a great experience, I really enjoyed my year and a half there. I, I, I played rugby uh, for Michigan State, and that was a great. I made lots of friends. I, um, a, a guy took me down the first weekend, second weekend I was there to visit his girlfriend, and, and this was a good Irish Catholic uh, wealthy family in Gross Point in, in Detroit, and there were 10 kids, and five of them were college-age girls, so I found myself in heaven. And uh, 
it, it was just a great experience uh, academically and, and otherwise. You mentioned rugby a couple of times. You, you mentioned that you got paid a little bit. Do you, do you put professional rugby player on your resume? No, because it was only semi-professional in, okay. in minor <laughs> leagues. And uh, to get as knocked around as I was for as little money as I was getting was hardly professional. It was <laughs> out, out, outright stupid, but that's what young, young people will do sometimes. But rugby has been good for me in that, um, in that I had instant friends when I went to the US and subsequently uh, um, we might get on to it, but when I went to France to live in France, I played rugby there and it was a great way to make uh, good friends and, and you need that sometimes when you go to a different place. So, Steve, that wasn't the end of your education, though. You continued, right? You, Michigan State was not the end of your educational journey. No, as I was at Michigan State, I became more and more uh, convinced that I, I wanted to, um, to do a PhD and I wanted to study. I'd done a lot of agronomy and I, 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 know I, wanted, I decided I wanted to work at the interface between practical agriculture as practiced on farms and science and the application of science uh, on farms. And to do that, I needed to learn more about really how plants worked and plant science and plant biochemistry and that sort of thing. And I had opportunities to stay in the United States for my PhD, but I decided to come back to the Australian National University, which is in our national capital called Canberra, because it's a really good university and because there was a really strong plant science team there. And, uh, and so I decided to come back and I did after my master's degree to come to Canberra and and do my PhD in in plant physiology and biochemistry and get stuck into more fundamental research and that's what I did and uh, that was also a very successful three year period in which I did a lot of um, a lot of research and set things up for the future which in this case meant moving back to the United States. So the previous steps in your education, you had had a little bit of trouble given you were had dropped out of high school and the first step was maybe a lesser known school. Did you have any trouble getting back into the National University then at that point or per, were they pretty well willing to accept your credentials by then? By then, yeah, they, uh, the, 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 the master's degree from Michigan State uh, was the key. Um, but you're right, I'd had real trouble at every stage about not having the the requisite education to get in and I had to use all my creativity and uh, deviousness to to be able to start <laughs> uh, but uh, but once I got a start you know I I worked hard and uh, hard work can overcome a lot of deficiencies um, but I still really struggled with things like mathematics physics chemistry because I was a, had dropped out of school at 15. So any listener, any, any kid out there, don't drop out of high school. It's, it's, a, it's a hard road, better off staying in school. It's not the recommended route, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Steve, you finished your formal studies, I guess, at that point with your PhD. I know you continued to learn for your entire career because that's what education is all about. But 
where did you go after that? Did you do a postdoc? Did you go into industry? What what kind of role did you have after that? I was very keen to to get a postdoc, and I was very keen to work with a particular man uh, called a Swedish American man called Ola Bjorkman, who was at the plant biology department at Stanford University in Palo Alto in California. He's just the greatest scientist. And uh, I had read all his work and I, I was really impressed with him. And um, luckily, I, I picked up another scholarship, an Australian one, uh, to go to Stanford. And so at the start of 1980, uh, freshly married to a beautiful young Australian girl, we moved to uh, to Stanford University, and and that was a great experience. Uh, Oliver Bjorkman uh, is was a fabulous scientist. He's, he's about ninety now and still alive, but uh, well retired. But he was a wonderful scientist, and he and I worked side by side in the lab. He was the first. He, he was a, a great mentor and uh, he was amazed by me because he was I was the only postdoc that ever uh, worked with him that would come in on a Monday morning with black eyes or a broken nose from playing rugby <laughs> and, uh, and then, then settle down to laboratory work. But for two and a half years, I worked very happily uh, and productively uh, learning from this great scientist. But that was interesting because I was getting more and more into biochemistry and physiology and, and getting away from agriculture. But uh, I started to think that I wanted to get back into agriculture and I was starting to think about what I would do. And I became aware of the very first cases of herbicide-resistant weeds in the United States. And this was atrazine resistance in cornfields. So weeds that were uh, cornfields in the US at that time were all being sprayed with the herbicide atrazine. And there were the first cases of weeds in, in cornfields being uh, surviving. Uh, atrazine and in fact being resistant to them and I thought mm, that's interesting and then in 1983 I won another fellowship to work for a year in France so in 1983 we left Stanford and moved to suburban Paris where uh, I had a fellowship for another, another year continuing the same sort of work but I had in the back of my mind this observation of um, resistance to atrazine. And France grows quite a bit of corn as well. And in France, I also observed that um, atrazine resistance was occurring in some weeds. And it was very, very early days of resistance. A lot of people didn't even believe it was possible for weeds to be resistant to herbicides. But this atrazine resistance was coming up. And I started thinking to myself, that's interesting. To study herbicide resistance properly, you need to understand agronomy. You need to understand farmers. 
But you also need to understand the physiology and biochemistry of herbicides. And I knew about all, I'd studied a lot about some of those things. And I thought maybe that's an area of research for me. And there was no mention, it was a very, just a start of resistance and no, no sign of it in Australia. But I knew we used a lot of herbicide in Australia. And I started to think maybe this is going to become a real problem and maybe I've got the skills to work on it. But going from maybe to reality takes a lot of stuff which I didn't have at that time. That's really interesting how you mentioned that all those different kind of disciplines all come together when you start talking about resistance, because when you're talking about herbicide resistance, and especially at that time, you were probably talking about farmer resistance also to changing their ways of doing things. They were used to using atrazine on every field probably, and and it worked, and why should I change? And so you maybe even a little bit of psychology might have been helpful at that time. Yeah, I've never been very good at psychology, but uh, <laughs> uh, you're right. There was farmer and agronomist and company resistance to the word resistance uh, <laughs> back at that time. And, and to be fair, there had been no resistance. Um, it just wasn't in people's thinking. They hadn't seen it. It was only just starting. So it was difficult to convince people that this could occur. And there was, as you say, resistance from farmers and others uh, to the concept of resistance. But the truth is the truth is the truth. And uh, it started to become evident that, yes, indeed, we could develop resistance. But at that point, it was still a very academic exercise where there was only a few fields. It wasn't a significant problem. There were plenty of alternative herbicides and uh, it was really a, um, a research issue, not a practical issue for farmers, agronomists and companies in the early 1980s and onwards for another four or five years. It's definitely interesting that you have the foresight to, to see this as a you know career field. It definitely provided you job security, you know, <laughs> over the, the last yeah. couple of decades. But before we get into herbicide resistance, a lot of our listeners, you know, are American farmers. I'm kind of curious, could you compare and contrast Australian agriculture to the United States? Are they more similar than different or are there any key differences between the two countries? Uh, yes, there, there are some very significant similarities and some very significant differences. The similarities are that uh, Australian agriculture is overwhelmingly family farms. There's some corporate farming, but I think it's something like 97% of farms are family farms. Uh, so a similar private enterprise, uh, family farming uh, culture as prevails in the United States. That's uh, one of the big similarities, the private enterprise. Uh, some of the differences are that family farms here are much bigger than in the United States. So for example, here in West, the state of Western Australia, the average size of a grain farm is in excess of 10,000 acres. Uh, wow. And that is significantly bigger than an average grain farm in the US. Another difference is that Australian farmers tend to own all of their farm. So I think in the US there's a lot of leased land. 
here most farmers own their own land, so they're big farmers in terms of area. Um, but they have to be because we're not as geographically blessed as the United States. Um, we don't have the deep, rich soils of the of the Midwest. We don't have the the fantastic river running through the middle of the grain-growing regions. Uh, we don't have as much rainfall, uh, so that's why we have to have big farms. But um, uh, but there are many similarities. So U.S. farmers coming here would see similar machinery. They'd see farmers wearing John Deere hats, uh, baseball caps. Uh, they would see they would see a lot of similarities. And so, yes, there are uh, big similarities where, of course, both countries are big suppliers to world food markets. So the U.S. is um, a huge exporter of grain and, and meat, etc. And so is Australia. So big export orientated agriculture, what we call broad acre agriculture, big farms, a lot of livestock, mostly sheep a lot of cattle and a lot of crops, but our main crops, uh, our big crop is wheat. And of course, uh, we don't grow much corn and soybean at all because the US farmers so darn good at that. I'm curious about the yields when we talk about wheat, for instance, I, I'm not even sure what a kind of a, I'm not that familiar with wheat here in the US and I'm not sure what a good yield would be, but what would the yields be comparatively between Australia and the U.S.? Pretty similar, or is one slightly higher than the other? Uh, for wheat, they're about similar. Now you really got me because I can't even talk in bushels per acre <laughs> uh, or pints per acre or whatever ounces per acre. Um, it always amazes me the U.S. The most technologically advanced, powerful nation on the planet, full of well-educated people who still use a system of measure and weights based on the length of the king's nose. And, uh, <laughs> I've completely. We used to have the system, but we completely changed a long time ago. But um, so I can't tell you bushels per acre. Although, no, I'd get it wrong if I guessed it. But wheat yields are similar. Uh, to wheat yields in the United States, but corn and soybean yields, um, they're minor crops here and they're great uh, uh, yields in, in, in the United States, yeah. So wheat's the big crop. Uh, barley is also a very big crop. Canola's a big crop. And there are parts of Australia in which cotton is an important crop with very high yields. Uh, sorghum's an important crop. It's a very big country, Australia, about the same size as the United States, but much of our inland is desert as, it, as against the US, which is really very geographically blessed, as, as your listeners know. It's kind of interesting that you mentioned the English system of measurement, you know, the US being basically the only place in the world that that's still used. You were here uh, what the late 70s, early 80s, there was kind of a push to change over to the metric system at that time here, wasn't there? Well, I don't remember it, but it uh, uh, seems to me that uh, it'd be very difficult to change in the US, but it'd be a good idea if, if you did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah, it's always a struggle when we when we talk to somebody and they tell us they get so many tons per hectare or whatever, and we basically have no idea what that means. <laughs> It'd be good to learn yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that's a bit of a problem. But in many ways, U.S. agriculture and Australian agriculture are similar, and in many ways, uh, we look to the United States for technology. Uh, we look to the United States for for leadership, and we often get it. And so, you know, there's a higher a high opinion of uh, of U.S. Uh, farmers. Um, I think by most Australian farmers. So Steve, kind of changing gears here. So your, your name is synonymous with herbicide resistance um, from your research and knowledge base. We, that's really why we wanted to, you know, have you on here, especially a lot of our listeners are consumers. They're, you know, the people we have farmer listeners, but also a lot of them are the consumers who are just buying the final agricultural product, you know, in the supermarket. So I guess for those more, you know, consumer type listeners, could you describe herbicide resistance, maybe from a high level, talk about how it happens and how big of a problem it is for farmers across the world? The, the issue of, of weeds evolving resistance to herbicides is, in essence, a simple story. We use in global agriculture, in U.S. agriculture, in Australian agriculture, and around the world, where we are producing food crops and other crops like cotton, uh, we operate on very big fields with very few farmers. So in Australia, an average grain farm of 10,000 acres is run by one farming family. So maybe a couple of, uh, of full-time uh, people. And if you are farming, and I've got a small farm myself, if you're farming 10,000 acres with just two people, you're not pulling the weeds up by hand. Um, you could maybe you could maybe hand weed uh, 20 acres. Uh, you certainly can't hand weed 10,000 acres of crop. And so we, for many years in this country, in the United States and many other parts of the world, we've used herbicides to control weeds and they do a great job. And many of them are just excellent a small amount of chemical uh, applied across a large area and magically remove the weeds. Uh, but what happens if, is if you continue to do the same thing, that is you put the same field into the same crop every year and you use the same herbicide, there's a very rare individual weed that's resistant to that herbicide and over time, those numbers accumulate sometimes quite fast. And the next thing is you've got resistant weeds and that herbicide doesn't work any longer. It's no different to antibiotic resistance in human health, where if you rely too much on antibiotics, you get antibiotic resistant bugs. It's no different to insects developing resistance to insecticides. If you use the same chemical on the same area of land every year or too often, then there's a high probability that eventually the weeds will become resistant to that, that chemical or that herbicide. And it's that simple. And it started in, 
most exam first examples were in cornfields in the US, in, in Western Europe, uh, where they were all using the good herbicide atrazine, but uh, ended up with um, atrazine-resistant weeds. And then it's occurred to many others, and in the United States, um, it has been glyphosate resistance. Um, that has been, we might want to talk about that. But what happened and the reason that, that you're talking to me today is that the first country that experienced a really big problem with resistance was Australia. And I was lucky in that I found myself in the right place at the right time. And in the 1980s and the early 1990s, resistance exploded in Australian agriculture and became a really big issue. And of course, we were, had to do a lot of things to try to counter resistance. And so I was in the right place at the right time um, to really uh, work in this area and, and build a big team. And at that point, it really wasn't a big problem in US agriculture. And it wasn't really a big problem. In, it was, but became a really big problem when all of US, not all of US agriculture, but significant parts of US agriculture uh, adopted Roundup Ready crops and sprayed half of the Midwest with, with glyphosate. And I didn't call it the corn soybean belt. I called it the glyphosate belt of the US. Well, Steve, we definitely want to get into the issue of Roundup resistance. But when we talked about your career, we kind of left off and you were in France. And now all of a sudden you were in Australia. We didn't necessarily talk about that. Can you tell us after you left France, is that when you started working at the university in Australia? Yeah, so I was working at this uh, well-known research institute in France, but I only had limited funding. And um, I was really enjoying living in France doing research, playing rugby on weekends, uh, made a lot of friends. But I was very much thinking about, well, we were very much thinking, my wife and I, about our future. We wanted to come back to Australia, but what to do and where and, and how and, and how to get funds. And I applied for a fellowship which would bring us back to Australia. And it was a salary for one year I could work at any Australian university I could do whatever I wanted, but uh, only for one year. And I wrote that to work on resistance, herbicide resistance in Australia, when there really wasn't any resistance known. Um, and so in 1983, uh, my wife and I returned to the city of Adelaide and to the University of Adelaide and a very prominent agriculture research institute within the University of Adelaide. And I started working and looking for resistance. And I found it. Um, and in fact, there was another guy working in a similar, he found it too. And, and uh, they were the very first cases of resistance in Australia. So uh, the year in France was excellent because it really solidified my thinking that resistance was going to be a problem. The other thing that it did for some of your listeners was that it exposed me to a different language. We have a great advantage in Australia and the United States in that we speak the world language. We might have different accents, but we can speak and understand each other. And much of the world doesn't speak uh, English. And if you're an English speaker, it's good to learn another language. Funnily enough, what I didn't realise 
it makes you better in your own language uh, because you think more about your own language when you are forced to speak another language. So a really big advantage of living in a culture with a different language is that you learn, have the opportunity to learn that language. And again, for any of you younger uh, listeners, um, it's a good idea to learn another language if, if you can, because if nothing else, it makes you better in your own language. So I had that experience in France, uh, but we wanted to come back to Australia and I decided I was going to completely switch research areas and start looking for resistance. And that was a big gamble. Uh, I had no money. I didn't have a university job. I had a one-year grant. We came back to Adelaide. I started looking for resistance, started assembling the basic sort of equipment to evaluate resistance, and I found it, but it took me about 10 months out of my uh, 12-month fellowship, and I wrote four grant applications in 1983, early 84, and the first three of them came back uh, unsuccessful, saying there's only two fields in Australia's resistance. We're not going to fund this. Uh, It's not a problem. And I had about six weeks to go on my one-year fellowship, and the fourth grant application came back uh, successful uh, that I had a three-year grant for my salary to work on resistance, and, and that started my career in herbicide resistance in 1984. Wow, that was probably a real sense of security to have a three-year grant at that point. Oh, man. By that point, we had a, a baby. Uh, we had to do all the things that everybody's got to do, establish a household, all of those sorts of things. It was just a great feeling of uh, elation the day that I got that grant. And a year later, I was given an assistant professorship, uh, which meant that I, I therefore had um, a tenure-track position, um, had to teach, of course, but I could use the grant for my salary to employ my first postdoc and start building a team. So from 1984 on, I started in a typical assistant professor position with research and teaching responsibilities. But then resistance exploded and I was in the right place at the right time and uh, could really get funding and build a big team. Did you still have time for rugby? No. Uh, (laughs) the first weekend that I returned to Australia I played rugby because that was the way that I um, used to make friends in a different place and a young guy broke my nose that day uh, and I came home with a big swollen nose and said I'm going to give up this rugby and did so I've been only a watcher of rugby since then. Your, your wife probably wasn't terrible upset when you gave it up, huh? No, I think, she, uh, I think she's sick of seeing me with parts of my body bent and broken. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so I, I stopped playing uh, rugby. And also, it was in an area of Australia. Uh, most of the southern states are not rugby states, and, uh, and Australian football is the game. And I wasn't going to play that because that's as bad as rugby in terms of injuries. Um, and it was time for me to grow up and uh, and, and uh, focus on career and family. So uh, 
I, I look back on my rugby playing days as great uh, because I made a lot of friends um, and things like that. Uh, but I've also got the battle scars uh, that that um, that you get with old age from uh, broken uh, bones earlier in life. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to all the listeners for tuning in to part one of our conversation with Steve Powells. If you like what you've heard so far, be sure to hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to us on. In part two, we'll dive deeper into the topic of herbicide resistance and the things that researchers are working on to combat this problem. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.